This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You know, as we're living life every day, there is a great question that persons of faith many times are asking just by looking at the world we're living in. God, where are you in this moment? When they look at these windows, I think that great question is before everyone in a very different way. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and I'm joined by Russell Moore. Today on the show, justice and mercy in the new stained glass at the National Cathedral. Will the Trump Organization be forced to shut its doors? We're going to take a look at the fraud case involving the former president in New York State. And then, chaos in the House of Representatives. We'll be joined by former Congressman Adam Kinzinger to talk about vacating the Speaker's chair and what comes next. So stay with us. On September 23rd, a ceremony at the Washington National Cathedral unveiled new stained glass windows honoring the civil rights movement. These panes were designed by the artist Carrie James Marshall, and they featured marchers wearing white shoes and waving banners that said fairness and no foul play. They replaced windows that featured Confederate generals Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee, windows that were installed in 1953 through a group called the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Joining me to talk about this is the Reverend Leonard Hamlin, who oversees Washington National Cathedral's outreach and social justice initiatives. Reverend Hamlin, welcome to the Bulletin. Thank you very much. Good to be with everyone. And Dr. David Taylor, a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, whose work often involves the interconnections of art, liturgy, and faith. David, welcome to the Bulletin. Thanks for having me. All right, so Reverend Hamlin, what led to this decision to remove the previous windows, and what made this installation possible? Well, I think like most decisions, it was the result of process first, time, and awareness, all coming into a single moment where the conversation about noticing these windows within the cathedral were heightening and growing. And the former dean, Dean Gary Hall, really wanted to begin a discussion about whether or not the windows should be removed. The first step was to take out of those windows symbols of the Confederate battle flag, but leave the windows in place so that they would foster a discussion about these symbols are the way that we look at our relationship with God as Christians. And then in 2017, we know there were tragic events that happened at Mother Emanuel in South Carolina, and Dean Gary Hall called for the windows removal. When the windows were taken out, we used the time in between to foster conversations, to join others in conversations, to engage in artists who would be able to replace those windows, which brings us to this very moment. For those who haven't seen it yet, can you tell us a little bit about the art? For instance, I think it's fascinating that the artist chose to depict essentially anonymous figures rather than well-known figures from the civil rights movement and whatnot. Can you tell us a little bit about the art and the decision-making behind what was installed? Well, we're very excited to be able to engage Kerry James Marshall, who designed the windows, and he had freedom from the committee, as well as under the dean's instructions, to really express and to honor the African-American faith journey within the United States. 
And he did not want to lock that in to any one particular moment or to the familiar. So how did he really project and really display the journey as well as the values of that journey in the windows? He decided in looking at that, that the pursuit of justice and using terms, as you were mentioning, with no foul play and fairness, things that would resonate in a very common level and common language to individuals that really apply to our faith. And in the work, in the way when he shows those who are moving, there's always been a resistance within the African-American community to injustice. We can take that to the grounding of slavery through the civil rights era, but it was not meant to be locked in time, but a consistent journey that, as the windows have been titled, that happens now and forever. David, I'd love for you to contextualize this for us a bit. When we think about the way the church gathers, what the church does when we gather, and the spaces in which we gather, why does a story like this matter? I think at some level, so much of the Christian faith is in this dynamic relationship to our imaginations and our imaginations to our affections. What we imagine possible or impossible can often compel us to desire certain things or to not desire certain things. So the church historically, for rather many centuries, has been acutely attuned to what it is that we see. And some traditions have many physical artifacts, artistic kinds of things like stained glass windows that are intended to positively form our imaginations so that we would then love the right things and then live in light of those loves. And so the arts have played their role well and poorly. And so I think in the case of the cathedral, we have an instance where the imagination is going to be warped or poorly or malformed by what it perceives or did perceive in the previous stained glass windows. And the new ones are intended to form the imagination of the worshiper or or the visitor in a way that is in accord with what is true. Something very similar happened with Duke Chapel, the Duke University campus, where there's a sculpture of Robert E. Lee in the entrance to the chapel, which was removed around the same time discussion ensued about what should replace it, and the decision was that nothing should replace it. And so the emptiness became a fullness and became a story that needed to be told. Russell, I'd love to hear from you on this as well, because this happens in the midst of an ongoing debate. I think it's simmered down a little bit in the last year or two about things like Confederate monuments and historical monuments and and some of these changes. You know, there are people who would say, well, this wasn't about the Confederacy. This was about heritage or lost lives or whatever. How do you think about those arguments and a move like this to remove a memorial like that? Well, there are some people who would say this sort of a move is erasing history. And there's a little bit of an argument that some people could make when it comes to the extremes of this kind of iconoclasm, the idea of getting rid of the Jefferson Memorial, for instance, when we know the awful things that Thomas Jefferson did, or taking Abraham Lincoln's name off of schools because of his views of the time on race, which even as the great emancipator weren't what we would hope for. So I think there is a way to go too far with that, but I don't think that's what's happening here. 
Instead of erasing history, the windows themselves were an erasure of history. I mean, that Reverend Hamlin pointed out that they were put in in 1953. A lot of these Confederate memorials and imagery is happening during the civil rights movement as a way of expressing backlash. And so taking those things down is the only appropriate response, given what we've seen, the only moral response. I think there's a difference between, you know, look at, for instance, biblical imagery. If you, if you have a church that has stained glass windows and it's depicting different moments in biblical history and includes King Saul, that's a very different thing than simply a stained glass window of King Saul or a King Saul Memorial Methodist Church or something like that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> and clearly in this case, you had a valorization and a glorification of Confederate militarism in a way that just is not morally appropriate. When we think of our faith communities, and especially as we look at the cathedral, the cathedral is more than a museum. I often remind everybody that museums have their specific, of course, task and roles, and that being a sacred space, a gathering of those who would come together, we're telling a story and we are sending messages in there. We're not just capturing history, but it's more than even the history. Now, we have a responsibility to tell that history, though, as truthful and as inclusive as possible, which is what happens within the cathedral. When you look around the cathedral in all of those 200 windows, what was really being recognized was that someone or many were being left out. That is an ongoing responsibility of those who are walking in their faith about who's not just ostracized, but who's included. Who are those that are pushed to the margins and sometimes not brought to the center? The windows allowed us to tell a greater and richer, more inclusive story, which is grounded in the faith that we know as being Christian. I think this is one of the interesting challenges that you must face, particularly at the National Cathedral. Like We do live in this time where religious commitments and political commitments are... Sometimes they distort one another or they live in tension with one another. People want to co-opt religion for the sake of politics, vice versa. How do you think about navigating that tension with a place that's literally called the National Cathedral, right? That's a, a tension that's probably more acute for you all in certain ways than it is in others. How do you think about that both as sort of a stewardship and a tension that you walk in? Well, I think many look at the responsibilities of walking in their faith as giving them really a pathway to get away from the tension, where ministry is done within the, that tension. It is to operate within the intersection. And so we are always wrestling, discussing, we could find other terms for that, but seeking to best live out the witness within the tension that comes, as we say, that intersection between the civic and the sacred. Some would put others or other definitions on the ends. But certainly here I am at the cathedral and many are aware I'm Baptist here at the cathedral. We all have our different expressions. And sometimes what we're really struggling with is that we're trying to say the same thing in a different way or using a different language. But will we take the time or even set time to have conversations, to engage one another so that we can find the common ground and sometimes really realize that we are saying the same thing. 
But that can be difficult for many individuals when they say, if you don't say it my way, something's wrong with that. And Mike, maybe to state the obvious, there's no such thing as an apolitical body of Christ. The moment we say Jesus is Lord is the moment we are making some kind of political statement about the ways that a society should be governed and organized, or our vision of the good life, or what it means to be human, invariably spills out into our common life as a society. But one of the interesting parts of the Western tradition related to beauty, and more specifically to Thomas Aquinas, is how beauty is closely related to proportion. And the idea of proportion, as it relates to justice, revolves around the idea of what a person is owed, or what is due to them, the dignity or honor that is due to them. And so what is beautiful should always accord with that which is rightly owed to each person made in the image of God, the dignity that is theirs. And inasmuch as these stained glass windows are giving a community in our society what is owed them, it is on those terms, one might say, beautiful, perhaps even a justifiable political statement. Not political in a narrow sense, but political in like what it means for us to be a society that is in some fashion <laughs> informed by the gospel, I might say. Yeah, and I love the language as well of the language of the good life. I think it was Jamie Smith I first heard reference the idea of looking at stained glass windows as being a window into this is the good life. And you think about the incongruity of you know, you have saints, apostles, church fathers, church mothers, and then <laughs> Confederate generals. <laughs> it's a very problematic vision because in that sense, sacred art exists as a reference point for spiritual formation. This is a vision we want to live towards. This is a vision towards something that we want to become. And I think it just seems in those terms, the existence of windows that these new windows replaced is quite disturbing. On a personal level, I mean, I think this is what I found so compelling about Marshall's vision for the windows. The idea that they were anonymous being that anyone could see themselves in those white shoes, right? Anyone could see themselves in there as an actor for the sake of justice. Mike, what I really love about the windows and, and Marshall's expression is that, you know, as we're living life every day, there is a great question that persons of faith many times are asking just by looking at the world we're living in. God, where are you in this moment? When they look at these windows, I think that great question is before everyone in a very different way. They have to get by though. The historical references that may immediately jump, the racial pictures that are there, can they get beyond the skin color? Can they get beyond that it's not traditionally portrayed? But they would have to look at these windows in the moment, as we said, the heat of the moment, the battle for injustice, the history of those, and many of us who have walked this path and experienced this in life, but for those who are not, they look at these windows and the question immediately would come up in a very natural and everyday way to say, God, where are you? And what I hope is that many are looking at those windows and they will be confronted with that question. Is God both in the experience of the African-Americans in that struggle, the fight for justice, those who have come up, but they ask that question that it could lead them to seeing, perhaps as we often say, and often are praying, God, show me where you're working and let me join you in your work. Terrific. 
Well, Leonard Hamlin, David Taylor, thanks for joining us for this conversation, and we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, New York Justice Arthur Engeron ruled that the Trump Organization was liable for widespread fraud for inflating the value of a number of their properties. As a result, some of his licenses to do business have been revoked in the state of New York, and the state's Attorney General Letitia James is asking for a $250 million fine and seeking to ban him from doing business in the state. His properties may be subject to seizure, and if that happens, they would be sold at fire sale rates. Trump has been eager to defend himself. He's shown up at the trial. He said he wants to testify. He's also called the entire thing an act of election interference. He's found himself in hot water for some of his comments this week on Truth Social, and those resulted in a gag order from the judge. Joining Russell Moore and I to talk about the case is Matthew Martins. Matthew is a lawyer with experience in criminal and civil matters. He's also the author of a forthcoming book on how Christians should understand criminal justice. Matthew Martins, welcome back to The Bulletin. Thanks for having me back, Mike. So where do things stand right now? Is a trial ongoing? Is there not a trial? Is this a judgment? I think there's some confusion given the language and the unique circumstances of this as to what exactly is taking place in this courtroom right now. Yeah, so there's something in the law known as summary judgment. So summary judgment is when the facts are not disputed, the judge can then just say, okay, do those undisputed facts warrant a trial or can I just decide the case on the law applying those undisputed facts? So there's seven claims at issue against Trump and the other defendants. The judge concluded on one claim last week that he could grant summary judgment. And that was claim number one. And so the remaining six are going to trial. They're all under the same statute, but the difference is with regard to the claim that he granted summary judgment on, there's no requirement for the state to prove either materiality or what the law calls scienter or intent. In other words, you can violate the statute if you make false statements, even if they're not material, meaning not meaningful, and even if you didn't do it intentionally. If you repeatedly made false statements, you can violate the statute. That's a pretty low standard. And so the judge has not found that there were intentional and material false statements. He found that there were false statements and that was enough to violate the statute to the extent they were repeatedly. So he granted summary judgment on that last week. And so what they're having a trial on now is claims two through seven, where the question there is, were the statements intentionally false? 
and were they material, meaningful, important false statements? So that's what really the trial is about. Matt, what do you think is the significance of the lack of a jury? What makes the difference between a judge deciding a case and a jury? Well, if one has a jury trial right, typically you have to invoke it. Mm-hmm. Meaning you have to ask for a jury, and there's a time frame under which you have to do that. There's a form you have to fill out, or you have to put the request for a jury trial in a particular court document. And there was no request for a jury trial. Is there a chance that's strategic? Is it possible that there was a decision that was like, hey, let's not go for a jury trial. This will work out better for us because of X, Y, and Z. Do you see any strategy that could make sense of other than we forgot to file the form or didn't think to file the form? So I think in every case, a defendant tries to decide, would they rather have a jury? Would they rather have a judge decide the case? The problem is often that you have to make that decision before you get a sense of what the judge thinks about your case, which maybe is the point, because no one would agree to it later on when the judge makes rulings and starts signaling his or her views. So there certainly could have been strategic decisions made. In other words, Trump may have realized he's not particularly popular in New York, particularly with a likely jury in New York City. And so he may have made a strategic judgment. He may also have made a political judgment that it would be more effective to not have a jury and complain about it and attack the judge. So I don't know which it is, but it's not inconceivable that there could have been a a strategic legal judgment to go with a judge rather than a jury. So what's really at stake here then, Matt? What can he lose if he loses in these trials? I mean, he could lose maybe everything in terms of his business. I mean, you saw that the judge in granting summary judgment directed revocation of the license to do business. What the state is asking for is that he not be permitted to do business, that he pay $250 million or that his business pay that that he'd be precluded from certain transactions going forward. So, I mean, it could effectively end his ability to do business in New York where the judge ultimately to rule against him and it be upheld on appeal. I mean, it's a serious case in terms of the ramifications for his business. What are the implications of uh, Trump said, I didn't overvalue them, I actually undervalued them. They're actually worth a lot more than what I put down. Does that admission put him in some kind of other legal jeopardy now? I mean, what's interesting about this is having having spent some time reading the papers, there's like real defenses here. I think that people can form views on this case around the personality. And given the last eight years, that's probably how people divide over this. But there's actually real legal issues around this. The issue of whether or not he misvalued the property raises a question about whether or not that's a statement of fact. In other words, fraud is statements of fact not statements of opinion. And the valuation of properties is an opinion question to some degree. There's a factual element bound up in it, which is, do you reasonably believe that opinion? But there's a lot of litigation about whether or not opinion statements like this could be the basis for a fraud claim. So, you know, there's a real defenses. The problem is when your litigation strategy is attack the judge who's going to decide and then throw a thousand issues at the judge instead of your one or two or three best issues, it can often work out that the three good arguments get disposed of with the 997 bad arguments. And I think there's a little bit of that going on here, honestly. What about with the attacking of the clerk using language that is not all that veiled in terms of potentially calls for violence, in terms of not just this case, but others. At what point do these 
partial gag orders result in actual consequences? Well, there's no question that that type of stuff a normal litigant would be in even hotter water right from the get-go. I think the judge is exercising restraint and probably for good reasons. You know, you don't want to turn him into a martyr. But I do think it's fair to say that once the gag order is in place, if you violate that, having violated now a court order and committing contempt, that would undoubtedly for any litigant result in severe consequences. So, you know, you can play games until there's a gag order in place. Once the gag order is in place, literally a court order violating that creates contempt risk. And that could be quite severe. So it'll be interesting to see whether, okay, with the gag order in place, are you still going to play close to the line? I actually would be surprised if it doesn't brush him back. Another thing that's come up quite a bit, and you hear this from both Trump and a number of his defenders and supporters, and I would say you also hear this from some of the sort of maybe not Trump supporters, but maybe Trump sympathizers on the right, who are pointing out that Letitia James, the state's attorney general, ran on a platform where she openly said one of her goals was to take Trump down. Does that have relevance? Does that impact the case at all? Yeah, I think you have to separate two separate issues there. There's a question of does it have legal significance? And the other question is, does it have significance to our democracy? So on the legal significance, I think the answer is clearly it does not matter. The judge has already said that in a prior ruling. The question will be, is the evidence presented sufficient to satisfy the law in this case? But I do think that there's a real reason to be concerned, even for someone who finds Trump distasteful, which I do very strongly. But I don't think that that means all bets are off. I mean, in fact, that's the criticism of him to some degree, which is that he's violating norms. And so I don't think the response is violate norms in response. I think it's very troubling for someone to run a political campaign, not on I'm going to look at particular types of crime. That's totally fair game. That's that's good discussion of public policy. It's the type of thing we should debate. But to instead run a campaign, I'm going to target this person and I'm going to find something. I think that should be concerning to us all because however distasteful he might be, and he is distasteful, he's an American citizen who's entitled to rights and protection of his liberty and property like the rest of us. And so I think there's real concern about that. And I think secondarily, there's real concern about the corrosive effect that has on people's confidence in institutions. That if you openly say, I'm going to use government power to target political enemies, and I'm going to find something... I think that that undermines people's confidence in the system and its fairness and even-handedness. And I think that that's very damaging long-term. So I do think that there's real reason to be concerned. I mean, I went back last night and watched some of the videos, both uh, the September 28th video by Letitia James that was part of her campaign, and then the election night victory video, in which she's very clear that she ran on a campaign of let me use my government power to target a political enemy. And I think that that's problematic. So I'm going to admit I have complicated feelings about that. While I'm not sympathetic to the politics of a person like Letitia James, and and I don't like it. It doesn't feel like this should be a norm. But but here you have someone in Trump who has broken with so many norms, has sort of flown in the face of laws and standards of decency and, you know, the peaceful transfer of power. I mean, you can go on down the list. That to me, a generic defense of saying politicians shouldn't target political enemies, et cetera, I'm all for. 
But Trump has so moved the Overton window on this stuff. I just have a hard time seeing it in that sort of abstract light. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the distinction I would draw, Mike, is that there's a difference between enforcing the law and more generic statements in a campaign that say, I will enforce the law without fear or favor against the, the powerful and the weak. And people can read into that, that she's saying that she'll take on Trump. But I do think that's different than running a campaign that says, I'm going to target this particular individual for something I'm going to go find that I don't know what it is yet. I think that that is much more problematic because, listen, at some point, Trump will be out of our national consciousness in all likelihood in your and my lifetime. But the institutions need to endure. And you can guarantee that if, if this AG runs a campaign that says, I'm going to target this enemy, that's going to be reciprocated. And we're going to be living in a world where that now has become the norm. In other words, you've got to maintain the norms even against the abnormal circumstances, I believe. And, and it's not saying don't prosecute him or don't bring this case. It's saying you can't run a campaign that says, I'm going to get this guy for something, which is essentially the campaign she ran. Russell, you wrote in March when the Stormy Daniels hush money lawsuit, when those indictments were first handed down, that this was a test for Christians. This was a moment where Christians were being tested, not because of whether or not Trump's behavior was criminal, which you know many people have said is sort of questionable in that case in particular, but in terms of how Christians respond with their support, it feels like we're still there. Well, I think it's a little bit different in this case. I mean, with Stormy Daniels, we had a very clear moral violation. And I think the same thing is true, except even more so when we're dealing with the January 6th case and the Mar-a-Lago case. This is a question of overvaluing, making statements financially that people may come down in different places on that. I think the moral test here comes, though, with the way that the former president is responding to the legal system and the kinds of attacks and personal attacks, especially in the era past Proud Boys stand back and stand by. We have the specter of political violence. It's already happened on January 6th. And someone is uh, truthing out statements along the lines of this woman must be stopped and uh, attacks on the judge in the context of also, for instance, gleefully mocking Nancy Pelosi's husband who was attacked with a hammer. You know, that is a very dangerous situation. And, and that, I think, in this case, is the moral test for Christians. Do we just ignore this? And to some degree, my friend uh, Charlie Sykes calls this the banality of crazy. There has been so much that takes place that we just become numb to it because there's no way to keep up with it all. Yeah, and I think that's what I was getting at with uh, maintaining the credibility of the institutions. You know, when Letitia James runs a campaign that says, I'll get Trump, as opposed to run a traditional campaign and then bring this lawsuit, she opens up the door for him to say, well, good, if the gloves are off and we're going to demean the institutions and you're going to turn your office into a political weapon, then good, I'm going to demean the institutions too. So, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm arguing against the approach she took and why it should trouble us, though it doesn't justify what he does, but it does provoke it, I think. Or give cover, maybe, is the better way to think about it. Fighting the monster, we can't become the monster, you know. So, Matt, what's next? Where does this case go from here? You know, in the next several months, the trial will go on. And 
the judge will <laughs> continue to manage a challenging situation. This is still several years away, probably a year and a half, two years away from a final, final decision. All right. Well, we will look forward to that. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for joining us once again. And we will be right back. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Well, in the very same year that we saw a Speaker of the House election that went to 15 ballots, we just saw the first time in history that a Speaker of the House has been booted out of the House. Now, former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy was subject to a motion to vacate from Congressman Matt Gates, and it passed with eight Republican votes tossing him out of the speaker's chair, opening up. Who even knows how to describe the chaos that's going on right now, including Congressman Garrett Graves of Louisiana saying that the Republican conference meeting couldn't go very long for fear that there would be fisticuffs and physical violence there. So it's a bad situation. And I knew exactly who we wanted to talk to about that. And that's my friend Adam Kinzinger, former congressman, Republican from Illinois, served on the January 6th committee valiantly in the, the last several years. And Congressman Kinzinger, thanks for being with me today. Does this make me the expert on bad situations? <laughs> it makes you the expert on, yeah, on dumpster fire situations. Absolutely. Why is this so middle school feeling? Yeah. I think what's happened is, this is a maybe 10, even maybe 20 year process, like money became mother's milk of politics. So we learned early on, and I mean, I remember this from my first term in Congress, that you can raise a ton of money with the dark arts. The dark arts being like fear, you know, mistrust the other side. And, you know, initially, I think we played with that fire a little bit, but we learned that that was addictive. And so over the last 10 years, you couldn't switch to an optimistic focus. It always had to be the other side as the enemy. Well, what they also learned is, you know, fundamentalism, whether it's fundamentalism in religion, whether it's fundamentalism in politics, fundamentalists are more angry at people that claim to be on their side that fall short of whatever their standard is than the other side, whatever the other side is. And so 
what you started to see, and you guys have seen this, is what really drives fundraising and what really drives attention is not going after Democrats, it's going after other Republicans. And so you have this generation that came to power basically on going against the establishment, even though ironically they're the establishment now, and they can't let that go. And so Matt Gates set up a situation where, as the most predictable outcome, Kevin McCarthy could not win in the long term, and he pulled that trigger. He's the most famous guy in politics now, and that's frankly all he wants to be. So I think that's part of how we got to this middle school fight. And, you know, look, there's still a lot of adults in politics. The problem is they have to play a little with the same rules that the quote-unquote legislative terrorists are playing with, and I think they're unwilling to do it. So that's a little frightening to me in the long run. Well, and it was a dynamic that I have seen over and over and over again in church life and in denominational life. If we just give the nihilists who want to burn the place down more and more and more of what they want, then they'll settle down and get on the team. That's right. And that doesn't work. It doesn't. If you, you know, you think of like Russia attacking Ukraine, what's the old saying I think about Russia? It's like the more they eat, the hungrier they get. And that's what it is here. I mean, you look at how is it that the issue of Ukraine now within the GOP is almost now the issue? You have to oppose Ukraine funding. And even though everybody that's quote unquote opposing Ukraine funding knows better, but it's all about how can I be more extreme? And that's addictive. How do you explain, I mean, a lot of these people, Matt Gates, very predictable, but then you have someone like a Nancy Mace who previously seemed to be sort of a mainstream kind of figure. Now she's on Steve Bannon's show. She was one of the eight. How does that happen? Well, she almost voted to impeach Trump. I had conversations with her about that. I mean, she was one of the early people that we were bringing together when we were talking about voting against the certification of the election. She was a reasonable person, but here's what happens. This is my thought, is you start looking at Twitter. And when you look at Twitter, let's say you do something that you know, would be considered moderate or would be, you know, Democrats may like, they'll praise you on Twitter until you go back to your Republican roots. You all have experienced this. You go back to your Republican roots and it's like, oh my gosh, I thought you were different. Well, if you have to belong to a tribe, if your personality, which I think we actually fear death less than we fear being kicked out of our tribe. I mean, I felt this feeling. You're watching Twitter and all of a sudden you go back to your conservative roots and everybody that used to like you hates you now. Eventually, you just decide to throw all in with one side. And this is what Nancy Mace did. And it's interesting. She'll continue to pretend like she voted on this because, you know, depending on who she's talking to, of course, she feels like Kevin McCarthy didn't do enough for women's rights or something like that. Of course, when she's on Bannon's podcast, it's something completely different. But do you really think Jim Jordan is going to be a better example than Kevin McCarthy was? I, I feel that in some cases, maybe the conservative movement, quote unquote, because they're not real conservatives. I think it's going to have to almost get what it wants and burn in the process to really save the party. McCarthy's blaming Democrats. I mean, I thought that was one of the things that was so remarkable in his speech on Tuesday night was essentially saying, yeah, I mean, the problem here is that all these Democrats who we all knew were going to vote against me because they voted against me 15 times earlier this year when given the opportunity didn't show up to support him. And now McCarthy's allies who still possess some power are kicking Nancy Pelosi out of her office. And there's this sort of shuffling of chairs over there. Yeah, I think one of you referred to it as middle school. I mean, it really is so beneath the dignity of the offices. It's the kind of things where you're literally getting with your kids and going, by the way, when you grow up, don't treat people like this. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Let's think about this. Even in Kevin McCarthy's defeat, 
he can't help but try to please, to an extent, the people that put him in the position he is in of losing that by going after the Democrats. Okay, look, yeah, the Democrats could have voted to save McCarthy. I've asked a few times, tell me one thing McCarthy has ever done to try to court Democrats in any way. Look, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a fan of Democrats. But I also know that if this situation was switched and there was a rebellion against Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic Party, there is a 0.0 repeating percent chance that a single Republican would have voted to save Nancy Pelosi. You can imagine how that would go if they voted to save him. So the idea that this is the Democrats' fault, no, they're the opposition party. They're gonna do everything they can to take power and destroy the party in the majority. You, as the party in the majority, have to learn how to govern. They used to be different, there used to be other coalitions, but that doesn't exist now. You made a choice, right or wrong, you made a choice that you were gonna govern solely with Republican votes that you would only put things on the floor that could pass only with Republican votes. When you made that decision, and you made it clear that the Democrats were to play no role in the House of Representatives, quit acting outraged that they didn't come in and save you. You talked about how there are serious people there, and we all know that's the case. How does a serious person in an institution that's melting down, not just the United States Congress, but there are a lot of people who are in that situation, How does a person navigate that? Well, here's the wrong way to navigate it, which is what most people do by convincing yourself that you need to survive because somebody worse will replace you. And that very well may be true, but eventually keeping your mouth shut over and over again leads to an entire movement replacing you and forcing you out. Look at Kevin McCarthy. He's example A. So I think somebody that's reasonable, that's trying to convince themselves of that, you can convince yourself of anything. Here's what somebody like that needs to do. And this is actually the way I think you can get out of this crisis, but there's going to be more bloodletting before it succeeds. You have to end up playing the same game that the eight people played against Kevin McCarthy. Let's say this. Let's say five to eight people in the GOP said, we will not vote for a speaker, period. Come hell or high water, we will not vote for a speaker at all that will not put Ukraine funding on the floor for an up or down vote. Speaker, you don't have to support Ukraine funding. I don't care how you vote. But you talk about regular order, Jim Jordan as an example. You have to commit to put that on the floor and maybe you'll get our votes. The problem is, because I was one of those people like the reasonable Republicans that was there. The problem is we talk a tough game, but when it comes down to it, inherent in who we are, we want to work together as a team. We're not necessarily comfortable, despite what I went through on January 6th, we're not comfortable kind of playing that terroristic game of we're going to burn it all down if we don't get our way, and we always capitulate. And that's why a majority of Republicans that are reasonable have always allowed this slide to the extreme to happen. And so if you could get people to say, look, we will withhold our votes, trust me, whether it's Jim Jordan or anybody else, they will eventually commit to put Ukraine funding on the floor, but you have to hold tough. That's the way you fix this, and it's going to be messy, and it means you may not have a speaker for three more weeks. But I think the Republican Party, and I say this as a, I guess, a Republican, a disaffected Republican, the Republican Party, to an extent, has to burn, I think, to save it. And this is that moment we're in. There's a lot of issues on the table right now. I mean, we're 45 days away from, like, the next continuing resolution. PEPFAR was still an ongoing battle. Ukraine funding, obviously, is a critical issue. And I think that's one of the things that's so damning about the situation is that Congress is so dysfunctional that these problems are just going to continue to rot on the vine 
because of this squabbling, which one of the insights that I think is so important about this moment as well is that anybody looking at this situation in January knew this was coming from Matt Gates. It was a matter of time. You knew it was coming from day one. You built a system that allowed for this to happen. It wasn't a matter of if, it, it was a matter of when. And you know, I just keep thinking of that line from Succession, you know, these are not serious people. Like that's the core problem here. And we have a country with very serious issues. Republicans are going to march around for the next year beating a drum about spending or about crime or about any of these issues and about any of these problems. But their own internal fighting and squabbling prevents them from actually addressing any of it. Yeah. I mean, look, there are real issues that Republicans could be in the catbird seat on. They're more interested in using these issues to stoke outrage using these issues to stoke division. We could solve immigration, by the way, tomorrow if we actually wanted to. And we all know what that solution is. We could do that. And they're more interested in the woke Pentagon. Oh, look, I have issues with the Pentagon. I'm still a guardsman. I take these briefings too. But we're still the best fighting force in the world. We don't need to talk ourselves down. And then ultimately, you lose any credibility when you ignore or pretend like you never heard the front runner for the Republican Party and the former president say things like General Milley needs to be assassinated or say things like, if you're caught shoplifting, we will shoot you before you exit the store. This is the former president of the United States, the leader of the Republican Party. And when people are, we're just used to the outrage now. There's probably some of your listeners that hadn't heard those comments and it's not their fault. It's just, we're numb to the outrage and so when you're a party that either pretends like you never heard that or you have a reason to feed that, it's impossible for the Americans to take you seriously. So that's where it goes to, look, the next year is going to be dysfunctional. It goes to the ballot box again. And for the Democrats listening, you have to put forward a vision for this country that is not beholden to the progressive left, but is beholden to, frankly, what the most of Americans want. And if you can do that, they will reward you with the ability to govern because certainly the Republicans have shown they can't govern. So what happens next in the House? My prediction, and I would put good money on this if I was a betting man, is I think Jim Jordan becomes the next speaker. Now, the dynamic of that, I think if it was a secret ballot, Steve Scalise or anybody else would win overwhelmingly. But you start watching the right-wing news over the next week, and they're going to force members, because if you don't, you're going to get attacked. They're going to force members to publicly proclaim that they're supporting Jim Jordan. That will be the new litmus test of conservatism is, are you going to vote for Jim Jordan? And keep in mind, on the floor, this is a public vote. So you have to get a majority within the conference to have your name basically submitted to the floor for everybody to vote for. So that's what I predict. Is there going to be some battles, some back and forth? Yes. I would love to see some of the moderates, so-called moderates, become emboldened and actually push back against the extreme. I just don't think they will. Now, the interesting thing for me, guys, will be, okay, if you take a guy that's never voted for a continuing resolution, probably, and is a big proponent of shutting down the government, and now give him the gavel and tell him he has to govern, what's that going to look like? And he may just be the dog that caught the car. I don't know. I know your answer to this, because we've talked about it many times, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is this craziness going to end? <laughs> <laughs> yes, ending very soon. No, look, I... <laughs> I think it has to end at some point because the country cannot survive this. Now, it'll either end by some grown-up awakening, by some crisis that happens of our own making, or by the Republicans losing power across the board. 
There's nothing that sobers up politicians like losing elections. But I also have seen Republicans lose elections and they've just become crazier. So do I think it ends? Yes. Do I think it ends anytime soon? No. And my point in that isn't to, for everybody to lose hope. It's to say, look, it took us 10, maybe 20 years to get where we are today. It's going to take some time to get out. Now, my grandfather fought in World War II and never could even talk about his experiences in World War II. And I think about everything he gave you know, for this country. I don't think we have, a, particularly as Christians, but also as Americans, I don't think we have a right to give up on our country. And so I would encourage people to continue to pray, to continue to practice what you preach, practice peace, which I have to remind myself of quite a bit, by the way. And don't give up hope. We can get through this, but it's not automatic. There's not a person on a white horse that's going to come down, unless it's the apocalypse, that's going to come down mm -hmm. and save us. Because trust me, the class of people that would have the white horses are Congress, and they're the ones that are going crazy right now. So it's got to be us. Former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who's founder of Country First, CNN contributor. Thank you, my friend, for being here. You bet. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for listening to The Bulletin. We'll see you next week. Who knows what will happen between now and then, but we'll be ready to talk about it. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producers are Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Our associate producer is Azure Phelps. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. Music by Dan Phelps. Show design by Brian Todd. Graphic design by Amy Jones. Social media by Kate Lucky. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.